Father, bless the giving this morning. Bless your people. Bless the families, the men and women that are represented by the watchers this morning of this congregation. God, for those who don't have jobs, Lord, bless them. Lord, may they see the victory this week as you give them the job that they need. Lord, uh, we're willing to work. We realize that work is honorable before you. And God, we pray that you would give us uh, the opportunities, the jobs that would give financial security to our families, Lord, and we could provide and care for them. And we could be blessed to such an extent that we could be a blessing. Lord, let our cups overflow with blessing so that we can flow to those around us. Lord, let the wealth of this world pass into the hands of your children, that your children might take a portion of that wealth and invest it in the kingdom of God so that your mission might be accomplished here on this earth. Father, bless the families this morning as they give. Lord, meet the needs of every family. God, we rejoice, Lord, that in these many months of this pandemic, you have cared for your children. Lord, our, our pantries are full. Our closets are full. Our bellies are full. Lord, our hearts are full with all of your provision and your love. Thank you for caring for your children in a wonderful way, even through a very difficult time. And we have the confidence that you will continue to do that. Father, as people give this morning, let them let them know that you're, you're with them, that, that you're going to care for them. Fill our hearts with that knowledge. And Lord, fill our hearts with your blessing as well. Lord, I pray that you be with the hearers of the word this morning, that as we look into the story that you told to your peers, Lord, there would be an application for us today to take away. Lord, if anyone listening this morning doesn't know you in a personal relationship, I pray that today would be the day that that relationship would be established. Lord, for we who know you, Lord, there are many lessons we need to learn and apply to our prayer life this morning. Lord, there's some assumptions we need to deal with and maybe some presumptions we need to dismiss. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand those lessons today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get right to our story this morning. Jesus was a master, incredible storyteller. His stories had a point. Uh, and in the short stories that he presents to us in Scripture, uh, we become hearers uh, of a first century Jesus Christ speaking to his peers. And in the stories he's telling, he's trying to get us to change a behavior or maybe trying to get us to change a, a belief or maybe trying to get us to change an attitude. But there's there's a, a, a goal in the story he's telling. And today there may be one or more than one very connected to our attitudes and how we approach God in prayer. Let, let me start with myself. I'll start from where I am. Uh, I was raised in church. I was raised by Christian parents and I've been in church all my life, which means then that I have been exposed to both public and private prayer all my life. Uh, I, I count it a big blessing to have been exposed to prayer. I mean, I can never remember a, a, a time in my life uh, when prayer was not a part of my life or a part of my environment that I grew up in. Uh, as a child, prayer was in our home. I had praying parents. I've heard my grandparents pray. Uh, I've heard friends of my parents pray. 
I, you know, I mean, I've just been surrounded by prayer all my life. It was almost a foregone conclusion that prayer would be a part of our lives. Let me say it in another wonderful way. I have no memories of a life where prayer was not a part of my life. I have no memories as I think back over these 50 years where I can say, has there ever been a time when there was no prayer in your environment? There never has been such a moment in my life. I've always known that God wanted to have conversations with me. I've always known and believed in my heart uh, that God wanted me to come to him and talk to him and converse with him. And I've always known all my life that I could talk to God at any time and from any place. I was taught, as the writer of Hebrews taught us, that I could come to God boldly and enter into his throne room and bring my petition to him. And he would always hear me. He's always welcoming my voice and my words, and he would never turn me away. Now, all that's a big blessing. But I also have some baggage from my childhood of, of prayer. But when it comes to prayer, I can remember back to a very uh, famous pastor. Because I grew up in a pastor's home, I was exposed to some of the most famous pastors in America. You know, I mean, maybe either in our home visiting as guests or maybe because they were preaching at our church or maybe we were traveling and we were in their homes or in their churches. But I can remember a very famous pastor who was preaching on prayer. And in his sermon, he said that prayer could simply be defined as asking. Well, that affected me. I took that to heart and I came away uh, as a, a younger Christian with the understanding that prayer is asking. And that gave me a wrong impression. I want to clarify, because prayer is not simply defined as asking. That is incorrect. And I was taught something that was well-meaning by the pastor, but it was theologically incorrect. Asking is only one little aspect of prayer. Prayer is much more than asking. Uh, prayer is adoration. Prayer is praise. Read the prayers of the Bible and listen to how the praying person praises God or adores God. Prayer is intercession. Intercession is where we pray for other people. We're not bringing my needs or my wish list to God. We're saying, I have a friend who's sick. I have a spouse who needs you. I have a, a child who needs, I have, a, I have someone who's not saved in my life that I have a relationship with. And God, I'm pleading for you to save them. Intercessory prayer. So intercession is also prayer. Supplication is prayer. So prayer is a little more broad or multifaceted than just asking. If all I do is ask, then what does that say about my relationship with God? If you want to understand that a little clearer, if all you do, if the only communication you have with your spouse is asking, then what kind of relationship do you have with your spouse? If all your children ever communicate to you is asking, what does that say about the relationship you have as a parent and a child? Or as a child, is all, all you, if all you do is ask, 
I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want. Never, hi dad, hi mom, how are you? If there's never any more conversation than asking, what does it say about the relationship? So I think some Christians, and I was one that earlier in my life misinterpreted what prayer was. It's not simply asking God. There's more to my relationship with God than just asking for him to meet my material needs. When we think about righteous acts, we think about things like attending church. It's a righteous act. Uh, giving, uh, that's a righteous act. Taking communion, that's obviously a righteous act as uh, mentioned in the New Testament. And certainly praying is something that we would consider a righteous act. This is what righteous people do, they pray. But today Jesus is gonna challenge your understanding of righteous acts, uh, focused on prayer, but incorporating righteous acts. We know that the fruit of a righteous person will be righteous acts, let me read for you from 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. So the scripture is saying a righteous person will do righteous things. We all know that. Every righteous person should have, this is the way we would say it in the church, fruit in their life that bears witness to their relationship with God. There's some evidence, we call that fruit, some evidence that you have a relationship with God. Let me read from Matthew 7. Jesus talked about this. He said in verse 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? If you're from the city, you may not know the answer to that question, by the way. <laughs> or do people pick figs? From a thistle bush, if you're from the city, you may not know the answer to that. But Jesus' culture knew this because they was a, it was an agrarian society. They were all agriculture people, and they're like, oh, no way. You know, you, know, you, you get a, a fig off a fig tree, you know, and you, and you get grapes off of a grapevine. Verse 17, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. It's amazing how Jesus can distill complex principles to something so so clean and so simple. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's very ominous, isn't it? Verse 20, thus by their fruit, you will know them, you will recognize them, which is a verse I think most people have heard somewhere in their life. If you're in a relationship with God, then everyone will know you're in a relationship with God by the fruit that your life bears. This is the teaching. We have to run around and tell everybody, see, I'm righteous. People will decipher that you are righteous by the fruit of your life. But because the truth is self-evident, people often make the uh, mistake of assuming that righteous activities are the thing that makes you righteous. So here's my first question for you this morning. Do righteous acts make you righteous before God? We know that righteous people will do righteous things, but that's not really the question here. The question here is, do righteous acts themselves make you righteous before God? Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. The answer is no. 
But I want you to think about that for a minute, okay? The parable we're about to read is obviously about two people. It's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So obviously there's two people that the parable, the story are going to center around. Pharisees were highly respected in Jewish society. I mean, highly respected. I want you to think much the way we might think of a Supreme Court justice. Uh, our congressmen and some of our other rulers are not quite as respected in, in American culture. So that's not really a, an equivalent for us. But the people who wear the black robes and sit on the court and you call them your honor or justice and you, you, you give great deference to them and respect because of their lifetime appointments and their high uh, judicious calling. That might be equivalent to the way that a Pharisee was uh, was treated in, in the Jewish first century culture. A Pharisee was a educated, highly educated, ruling class. I mean, they governed and directed the country, spiritual leader. They were both political and religious leaders. They were highly respected and they were considered the very definition of righteous in a first century Jewish setting. No one followed the rules like they did. No one knew the Bible like they did. No one was righteous like they were. They were special and they were treated specially. They dressed specially. They ate specially. They prayed in long flowing public prayers. They fasted often, and when they fasted, you all knew they were fasting. They let you know, and they they looked sour and down, and, and they put on a certain air about their fasting so that everyone knew they were fasting, so that everyone would know how righteous they are. And, and the general sentiment about a Pharisee was, if God approves of any human being, surely it's a Pharisee. I mean, if anybody ever kept the rules, it's this group of people. Now contrast that to the other person in the story, the tax collector. If the Pharisees were respected and special, then the public attitude towards tax collectors were the polar opposite. If the Pharisees were lifted up and respected, the tax collector was spit upon and demeaned and held to be the, the scum of the earth. They were despised by society. They were the epitome of corruption they were Jews who had partnered with the Roman oppressive occupying force, which means you're like a traitor, like a Benedict Arnold sides with our enemy and then steals our own money and oppresses their fellow Jews. So they were really held in disdain. When uh, they won, they had to bid for a contract to collect the taxes under the Roman government. And if you won the privilege to collect the taxes, you won that privilege often through corruption because you're going to give kickbacks then to the Roman governing authorities. And you could tax the people uh, at the rate the Romans wanted to collect. In other words, the Romans might say, for this city, we want you to collect you know, $100,000 in taxes. Well, if you're the tax collector and you could get $200,000 out of the people, you could give Rome its 100000 and you could keep the other 100000 Whatever you could extort above what Rome wanted was yours to keep. I would call your attention to the story of Zacchaeus, who had done this very thing. 
and had become a very wealthy man and a hated man in his community because of this very practice. So the tax collectors were classified in Jewish society right next to robbers and murderers. Scum of the earth, okay? Now, with that setting, let me read for you the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's found in Luke chapter number 18, and it begins in verse number 9. These are the words of Christ. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, Thank God, I thank you, that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, this is classified as a prayer parable, a prayer story that Jesus taught because the action that they're doing is going up to the temple to pray. So I guess we should uh, analyze their prayers, uh, uh, dissect their prayer a little bit. Both prayers begin with a one word address to God. God, comma, they both address God with one word, but there ends the similarities of their prayer. That's the only thing the prayers have in common is God, the opening word. The Pharisee's posture is briefly described, but his prayer is long. The tax collector's posture is mentioned in great detail, but his prayer is short. The Pharisee is standing alone, and what that means is it is implied that he is standing in a high place of honor. He's a special person standing in a special box in the special lifted up plate, you know, he's, he's, he's by himself in a place of great honor. The tax collector is standing at a distance. He is standing in a place of dishonor. He knows he's a sinner. He's despised by the other worshipers and he seems to know his place. Now at this point, maybe we can have a little bit of uh, kinship with the tax collector. Let me ask you some personal questions. Have you ever felt when you came to church like you were the worst person in the room? Have you ever come into the room there with the worshipers on a Sunday and looked around and said, these other people are really clean and nice and wonderful people, righteous people, but I don't feel like I'm on the same level with them. I'm not sure I belong in here with these other really good, holy, clean people. I feel like I'm the worst person in the room. Have you ever felt unworthy to be around other Christians? I want to tell you a secret. Most Christians feel this way, at least at some point in their journey. I can't tell you how many people come into the church for worship 
And in their heart, they're thinking, I hope these people, I hope no one recognizes me. Hope no one knows me from my 20s in here. Hope nobody runs into, I hope I don't run anybody at church that knew me when I was in high school or college or, or, or whenever. Listen, this morning, thousands of people are approaching worship with this tension in their heart. I can't tell you how many people come to worship setting apprehensively and in their heart, they're thinking, I hope no one asks about my present situation. See, when Jesus encountered the woman at the well, there was this tension. She felt the tension of the fact that Jesus did know her, knew her past and knew her present situation. And a lot of us know we need to worship God. We want to worship God. We want to be a part of this righteous acts of communion and prayer and worship. But all the while we're longing to participate, we're wondering, I hope nobody really knows how I'm what's going on, where I'm at spiritually, because I would be embarrassed if the truth were to come out about where I'm really at, it, it would cause some, some embarrassment for me. And I think that's part of the tension that's being held right here. Here comes the tax collector, <coughs> scum of the earth, into the worship service. And he's like, I have no idea how I'm going to be treated. How, what, will what are the people? I know I want to approach God in worship, with the corporate environment, but I don't know how the people will treat me. Because that's a lot of the tension that modern people feel when they come into the worship. They know God wants them to worship, but how will the people receive me, welcome me, interact with me? You know, what will they think of me? What will I think of them? This is the tension that's being held in the room. When Jesus tells the story, what's very clear is the two men are presented as extremes. Polar opposites. Here's what you think righteousness is. Here's what you think a big, big sinner is. Here are the leaders of the land, respected and honored. Here is the most dishonored person in the community. If you looked up the word righteous in a first century dictionary, you'd find the picture of a Pharisee. They would say, well, here, like this guy, this is what a righteous person is. And if you looked up the word unrighteous, they would say, here, something like this. This tax collector, that's what a that's what an unrighteous person, uh, somebody who's not noble, not trustworthy, not honorable. That's what the tax collector is. So let, let's do a little uh, thought exercise here. So when you hear the word righteous or righteousness, or I'm using the word this morning, a righteous person, when you hear the word righteous, what do you think of? What picture do you form in your mind when you hear the word righteous? Let me approach it a different way. Let me ask you a question for assessment. How can a person be righteous before God? I mean, here I am and there you are and we both, I know about me what I know about me and you know about you what you know about you. And we're feeling some tension here between us and God. How can a person be righteous before God? And I would challenge you not to be dismissive of this question. Because the answer to this question is what determines if you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's a big question. You talk about going to heaven or being in the kingdom of, of heaven. 
The answer to this question is what determines if you're going to get in or not. So don't be dismissive. How can a person be righteous before God? Well, I'm feeling this tension in my heart, feeling if I assess honestly, I would confess that I'm not righteous. So let's ask ourselves this morning, who is righteous? Now, if we examine the parable, the story, the error of the Pharisee is that he thinks he can do righteous acts while harboring disdain and hatred for other people like the tax collector. The Pharisee thinks he can be righteous because he's praying and he's going to church and he's giving his tithe and he's doing all of these righteous acts while at the same time harboring disdain in his heart for the tax collector. He's doing religious things and he's very certain that his religious acts have put him in good standing with God even though he doesn't love everyone. He's just sure that because he's doing righteous things like going to church and, and giving his tithe and saying a prayer, he's certain that God approves of him even though he hates his brother and holds disdain for others. He's certain that separating himself from sinners has distinguished him and his peers and made them better than the other people in the room. Surely God sees the Pharisee as righteous. Or does he? That is the tension of the story. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, can we fulfill the law without loving our neighbor? I think it's a mistake. I think Jesus clearly taught that it's a mistake to think that you can fulfill what God is asking of you without loving your neighbor. The scripture is very clear on these things. Look, look at Jesus' preface to the parable. I want to read this from two different versions this morning. Luke 18, verse 9. Listen to the preface to the parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on everyone else. That's from the CSB. Let me read it from the NIV again. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So Jesus is challenging those who trust in their good works to consider your standing before God. The scripture is very clear about who is righteous. Let me read Paul's words from the book of Romans, chapter number three. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even, let's use the word me right there this morning, not even me. Listen to Paul's words again a few verses later. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if there is no righteousness in us, then we have to find righteousness from an external source. Now, this is the great treatise of Romans now describing how you get salvation and righteousness. If there is no righteousness in me, then I have to look to an external source to provide that righteousness for my condition. When Israel was confronted with this question, who is righteous? 
they assumed that the people who did religious acts were righteous. The people who prayed and went to temple and made sacrifice and gave tithes and, and took communion, these are the people who were righteous. That was their understanding. Jesus reveals that God answers this question very differently than people answer it. In Jesus' story, which man went home with God's approval? This is something we really need to focus on. Luke 18, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Read Jesus' verdict in verse 14 now. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So there's some easy conclusions to make at this point in the story. We can easily conclude that you can attend, worship, pray, give a portion of your income to the church, keep your life ultra-separated, from the company of sinners and still not be in good standing with God because those righteous acts do not make you righteous. Let me say it in a couple of different ways that'll drive the, the thought home. Righteous acts without compassion and love are not considered righteous acts by God. So going through the motion of what we would say today, religion, does not make you righteous before God. Let me say it in a different way. Righteous acts without a right heart are, con are not considered righteous acts by God. So even if we pray and give and come together for worship and our heart is not right, we think, well, I'm going to do this because somehow it makes me righteous before God or create some standing. If it's done with the wrong heart or if it's done with no love for your neighbor, if it's done with disdain for others, if it's done with the wrong attitude of heart, it's not considered a righteous act by God. When Jesus gave his pronouncement of which man was actually righteous before God, Jesus' pronouncement must have been mind-blowing to the hearers of Israel because it blew up their whole paradigm. It, it blew their mind, essentially. Jesus' parable was not just controversial. They saw it as a slap in the face. They saw it as a slap in the face to those who thought they were in good standing with God. Imagine how the Pharisees, hearing this story, I mean, this was like a punch in the gut to them because they're like, see how righteous we are. And Jesus just like took the wind out of him. He's like, you have no righteousness before God whatsoever. God is not pleased with you. Jesus just called a man righteous whom the whole community considers unrighteous. Jesus just called a man unrighteous whom the whole community considered righteous. Jesus just turned over the tables. He just flipped all the paradigms upside down. And we are confronted with the fact that doing righteous acts does not make you righteous before God. You know what? 
even in the modern world in which we live, that flips religion upside down right now in America. Because that is not the understanding of most of our fellow citizens in this present age. To our disciples listening around the world, in Europe and in Asia and in Central and South America, to proclaim this teaching of Christ flips everything upside down. Those who are praying the rosary are not necessarily considered righteous by God. Those who are lighting candles are not necessarily righteous in God's eyes. Those who are sacrificing in the temple right now are not considered righteous necessarily by God. Those who are lighting the incense and going through the motions of religion, be very careful now because Jesus has just flipped everything upside down. Let me read Galatians 2, verse number 16, excuse me. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Listen very carefully because by the works of the law will no one be justified. What we find is that the teachings of Jesus are in absolute conflict with the normal understanding of our society. So it leads us to the next big question. How are we justified before God? Uh, justified or justification, this word that you hear in church uh, often. Justified or justification, it's a, it's a, a theological word. And here's the real definition of justified. Declared or made righteous in the sight of God, acquitted. Acquitted is that legal word we would use in our society when the charges have been dropped. Maybe you've gone to trial, you've gone through the process, and they said, oh, not guilty. You've been acquitted. Uh, all the charges are dropped, and uh, that no longer hangs over your head. You are free from that charge and accusation. You've been acquitted. So justified is declared, pronounced, righteous in the sight of God. So God clearly in scripture is the one who justifies. Romans 8.33 says, it is God who justifies. And since God alone is righteous, God alone is the person who can proclaim us to be acquitted of our sins and in good standing with himself. Now let's go back to the story. The Pharisee is trusting in his religious works and he presumes that he and God are good. See, because of the way I dress and because I don't mix with these unclean sinners over here, I live in this ultra separated bubble uh, 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 of goodness. See, God and I must be really good. That's his presumption. I'm a Jew. I do religious things, righteous things. And I don't mix with these unclean people. God and I must be good. And that's his presumption. The tax collector is justified because he pleads for mercy to the only one true God who can grant forgiveness. And he never presumes anything. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I know what I am. How about that? I'm a cheat. I'm a robber. I'm a thief. I'm an outcast. Each one of us could say this morning, God, I know what I am. And I know you know what I am. I know me and you know me even better than I know me. And God, you still 
offer mercy and love to me. The tax collector is justified because he makes no presumption about his standing with God and only pleads for the mercy of God who alone can grant him forgiveness. And in the end, he goes home in good standing with God. Now, let me read from Paul's great treatise in Romans again on our salvation. We pick Romans chapter three up once again in verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. Have you ever tried to keep the law? It's a real booger bear to keep. We all break it. We all fall short of it. It's a standard that's so high you can't keep it. And that's exactly what Paul said. When we stand next to that perfect law, we realize we come short of God's expectation. We have sinned before God. Let me read verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given, listen to how righteousness is given to you, through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. How wonderful is that? What Paul's saying is that people misunderstood, like the Pharisee. They thought, I am born, I'm an American, I'm a Jew, I'm this, I'm that, I'm educated, I don't uh, do these things, I do these righteous things. People thought because of all of that, God and I are probably really good. And they were wrong. And now Paul's stating very clearly Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, and he makes no difference between American or Indian or Romanian or Nicaraguan or Mexican or Jew, or, or he makes no difference to all men and women who believe by faith. Listen to verse 28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So let me see if I can begin to wrap it up here. We who have no righteousness are credited with having righteousness. God looks at us as if we did have righteousness. When we believe by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who alone can give us righteousness. And just to reinforce that this is correct scripturally, let me read further Romans 4. What does the scripture say? Let's use an example. Abraham believed God, not did righteous works. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as gift, but an obligation. That's clear. Verse five. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Paul would later tell the European Christians, he, he would tell them things like this, a reading from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, not by your own righteous acts. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. When you 
put your faith in Jesus Christ and you forsake your own goodness, then God credits the righteousness of Jesus to your account. And that's how you get justified before God. When you believe by faith in Jesus Christ, faith, it's like it links your life to the life of Jesus. Another way of saying that is it puts you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. By faith, I've believed on Christ and I'm in a relationship with him. I am linked to Jesus Christ eternally. And when you are linked to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ credits his righteousness to your account. So here's the big question for you this morning. Let's wrap it up. Have you done that? One of the big takeaways in this prayer parable is going home from church after having done righteous acts like prayer and knowing for sure whether you're good with God or not. The Pharisee thought he was, but he wasn't. The sinner who came in despised by his community saying, I know I'm a sinner and I know I don't deserve your righteousness, but I'm calling out to you in hope against hope that you would be merciful to a sinner like me. Jesus said that guy went home with righteousness. He went home with God's approval. Have you done that? If you've never called upon Jesus and said, God, I know I'm a sinner. And Lord, what I'm understanding from your word is you are merciful and loving to sinners. I'm calling upon you today to start that relationship if you've never done that, I'm going to give you a chance in just a couple of minutes now to call upon Jesus Christ as your Savior. To the others who have already done that, so you've called upon Jesus. He's proclaimed you righteous. Now you should do righteous acts. Not in order to get righteous, but because you now have been proclaimed righteous before God. Now you should do righteous acts. And I would say to all who have called upon Jesus Christ, your next step is the step of discipleship. What did he say to his audience who were there? Follow me. Take up your cross now and follow me. Follow me and be my disciples and let your life be transformed and you will bear fruit. Listen, every true believer is called to make disciples. So we think about getting back to church and back to routines and opening our home to visitors in our home again. Let's start getting our hearts and minds ready to really re-engage in the mission of investing in other people. This is how fruit bearing is going to come about in your life. So now the parable in closing reveals two different views of God. The Pharisee presumes God has justified him. His view of God is false. False. The tax collector hopes against hope that God will be merciful and forgiving to sinners. His view of God is right. That is the true view of our God. And we are learning this morning that the prayer parables are really less about how to pray and more about praying with a proper attitude a proper heart, and a proper understanding towards God. I want to I close this service with a moment of prayer. This is always more difficult through the camera than it is in the church setting, in-person setting. 
but I'm going to ask if you're watching. Let's pretend like we're in the room right now, that we're there in the corporate worship and make this a solemn moment of, of reflection right now. Our heads are bowed as we begin to close the service now. The correct attitude towards God is to remember that God delights to quickly answer your prayers. This has been our teaching. The correct attitude towards our neighbor is to love our neighbor as ourself and put them in the first place. The correct attitude towards ourself is to remember that we're not superior just because we've been coming to church for decades. We're not better than anyone else. We're only righteous because a loving God has credited his righteousness because of Jesus Christ to our lives. And maybe you can identify with this tax collector in some ways. Maybe you too have been dismissed by your peers. Maybe people have looked at you as someone who will never measure up. And maybe when you come into the congregation of worshipers in your past church experiences, maybe you've had a real bad experience with religion. Maybe others have written you off. What I want to say to you this morning as you pour out your heart to God is I want you to know that you are loved just like this tax collector was loved by God. You are loved. And you are wanted. And you are valuable to the kingdom of God. And because of that, you are loved and you are wanted and you are valuable to Cornerstone and to our family. The world may have written you out of their plans, but Jesus has written you into his plans. You have a future with Christ. If you've never received Christ as your savior, I want you to pray with me right now. These are not magic words or a magic formula, but I'm just going to pour out my heart as if I were unsaved calling out to God and you just follow my lead. Pray in this similar manner. Just say to God, dear God, I'm a sinner. I know that. You know that. And like this tax collector, I'm not righteous. I have no righteousness of my own. And I don't presume that you and I are in good standing. But I want to be in good standing with you. So God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. And I do believe that Jesus is the son of God. The savior of this world who died on the cross and gave his life for me. Took the punishment that I deserved. Was buried and rose again the third day to be my savior. I believe that. And Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I want to call you my king. So this morning, I accept you as the Lord and Savior of my life. And I accept your sacrifice as the payment for all of my unrighteous sin. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me and adopt me into your family and make me a citizen of your kingdom today. Thank you for loving me when others didn't. Thank you for accepting me into your family, maybe even being rejected by my own. Lord, 
Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and connect me to a disciple maker who can show me the path of transformation to be like Christ. Father, for those who have already received Christ as their Savior and those who have this morning, I lift them in prayer. God, if our attitudes have been wrong, Lord, if we presumed things that were not true, Lord, thank you for shining the light on that. Help us to correct our attitudes in prayer. Lord, help us to correct our attitude toward our neighbor. Lord, help us to love those around us and put them and honor them before our own selves. Father, thank you for coaching us through your word about prayer and about attitudes and about our own hearts. Lord, often we come into your house thinking we're the worst person in the room. And Lord, I I know many feel that way. They're wondering if they'd be accepted and if they will be loved. And probably the people sitting around were feeling the exact same way. God, thank you for a humble congregation to lead. Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts, Lord, be focused on the mission of making disciples. Lord, give us confidence that we are right with you and that you have accepted us because we have accepted your son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. Fill our lives with blessings and joy this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.